Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was the summer and I was out gardening and I... I was digging the soil and I suddenly felt the ground whoosh towards me and I felt faint, very lightheaded and I panicked because I, I previously I had suffered from panic attacks and I still do. So I thought it was a, a panic attack, quite a serious one. And I have a small ride on Kubota, so I jumped on it and I skedaddled out of the orchard where I was um, as, as quick as possible. And I went upstairs and I went straight to the couch and I lay down for about two hours. I slept for about two hours. Once he had reached symptom satisfaction, he said, well, there's, there's got to be something else. So he sent me off for a, an MRI. And later that evening, I was wheeled into a, a private room and another doctor came along and said to me look I'm sorry to say but you've had a stroke but you've also had six TIAs and it's a, a bilateral multifocal infarction so the blockage was at the, both sides of my artery to the cerebellum so it, it was a bit of a, a, a jaw-dropping moment after all of that recovery has been a, a mishmash of fear anxiety milestones, joy. It's been ebbs and flows. When I first got out of hospital, like a lot of young stroke survivors, I went for that boom-bust cycle. So the brain's working incredibly hard with repair and neuroplasticity is, you know, at its forefront at this period. So I was dealing with symptoms 24-7, but at the same time, I was making a lot of what I felt was progress. I have quite severe ocular motor dysfunction, so the way my, my cerebellum is communicating with my eye muscles, and part of that is things like nystagmus. I think I also have stereopsis where I can't judge distances properly, so I, I'm quite disorientated within my space continuously, so this is non-stop. I'm Mark Goodyear, and welcome to the fourth season of Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. A bilateral stroke is a rare form of stroke that affects both hemispheres of the brain. It's usually caused by multiple blockages or bleeds. Diagnosis of a bilateral stroke can be difficult because the typical stroke symptoms may display differently. For example, instead of weakness on just one side of the body, both sides of the body might be affected instead, making the cause of this condition less clear. In this episode, we hear from Rupert Owen from Southwest Wales, who suffered a stroke at the age of 44. I'm an author, so writing is my primary income, but I also have a small holding, so I, I tend to a, an orchard and I keep bees, so I'm a beekeeper. I've got livestock, so pigs and ducks and geese and chickens and sheep on the land. 
I was a very keen forager, so I would go out twice a year foraging for different fungi. So I'm a, sort of a, an amateur mycologist, and I would spend a lot of time gardening as well. So I was a pretty active person outdoors, but also quite active indoors within my imagination, of course, because that's what writing entails. That was me. And I've got a young family as well. So that was me before I had the stroke. It was the summer and I was out gardening and I, I was digging the soil and I suddenly felt the ground whoosh towards me and I felt faint, very lightheaded, and I panicked because I, I previously I had suffered from panic attacks and I still do. So I thought it was a, a panic attack, quite a serious one. And I have a small ride on Kubota, so I jumped on it and I skedaddled out of the orchard where I was um, as, as quick as possible. And I went upstairs and I went straight to the couch and I lay down for about two hours. I slept for about two hours. When I woke up, I was slightly giddy and disorientated. So the next step was calling the doctor the next morning. So I did that and I spoke to a, a GP. It wasn't my regular GP, but I spoke to a GP and she said, well, you've got BPPV, so benign positional proximal vertigo. Everyone likes to hear the word benign. So I thought, that's great. That's fine. She said, it will last for a short period of time. So don't worry too much about it because it's locked down. Everyone's out gardening and there's a lot of it this time of year. So I, I didn't think anything more of it. It was an excuse for me to walk around with a cane. I was pretty confident that this was nothing serious. I spoke to other people about it and they said they had had the same thing. And it lasted for about two weeks. Well, mine went on for about a month. And I started to get a little bit worried about this. So I was doing research and I came to the conclusion that there are other reasons why I could be feeling this way. And that could be lack of oxygen or blood to the brain. So I thought I really have to, to revisit the, the GP again. So I booked an appointment. I wanted a face-to-face -face one. So I got that and I went and saw the GP. She checked my blood pressure. She checked my heart. She said, look, you're fine. She drew me a little picture of my ear and the little crystals inside that apparently had become dislodged. And then she waved me away, gave me a prescription for some medication, which I was told would alleviate the symptoms of, of the BPPV. I took the medication because I had about two weeks worth and nothing resolved in itself. So I really was starting to get a little bit worried here. And I was, I was actually feeling at times a reoccurrence of that slight sort of whooshing feeling, fainting sort of lightheadedness. I phoned the doctor again. This time I got through to my regular GP. I expressed my concerns. I said this, this you know, lack of oxygen to the brain, lack of blood. He said, well, this is very possible. We'll send you in for a cervical spine x-ray. So I went into hospital. I had that done. It took 10 days for the x-ray to get back to the surgery. Then I phoned the doctor once it had arrived. My regular GP had gone on annual leave, so I got this other GP again, and she said, look, I've looked at your x-ray, it's all fine, nothing to worry about. So I let it go, and then it was a few weeks later that I suffered a major stroke, waited two and a half hours for the paramedics, that when they arrived, they thought it was BPPV as well, they were convinced of it, they said, do you want to sleep it off for the night? And I had that moment where I'd been lying on the floor for two and a half hours, vomiting and unable to stand up. I'd emptied my guts completely. There was nothing left to come out. My cat was curled between my legs to keep warm. 
And I, I said to them, no, I, I'm trusting my gut instinct, my intuition. I have to go into hospital. So I went into hospital. At hospital, they still thought I had vertigo, um, BPPV. They gave me the Epley maneuver on the hospital bed and they did a CT scan. Next morning, head doctor came along and said, look, you're fine. Nothing's wrong with your brain. You're okay. But we're going to send you down to the, the nose, ear and throat specialist who happened to be, a, a, I think, a brilliant man because he, he tested me out and he didn't just rely on this thing they call symptom satisfaction. Once he had reached symptom satisfaction, he said, well, there's, there's got to be something else. So he sent me off for a, an MRI. And later that evening, I was wheeled into a a private room and another doctor came along and said to me, look, I'm sorry to say, but you've had a stroke, but you've also had six TIAs and it's a a bilateral multifocal infarction. So the blockage was at both sides of my artery to the cerebellum. So it it was a bit of a, a, a jaw dropping moment after all of that. Before he eventually received a diagnosis, Rupert had to live with his TIAs for three months. I did all my usual tasks. I mucked out the pigs. I pruned orchard trees, climbing up a a large A-frame ladder. I checked my hives in a bee suit. I did all the things that I would normally do whilst my brain was being blitzed by these clots. And every now and again, I'd get a sensation that would, would... just sparked that sort of hesitant query that something something was amiss, something was mm. wrong, and I needed to I needed to really push as hard as I, I could to to try and you know get through to people. But I was you know I was, it was just too late. There wasn't enough time. So the stroke remains cryptogenic. They ran all the tests. No cause was actually found. But one of the things is is that I had a, a seven inch thrombosis in my arm that I discovered whilst navel gazing in hospital because I was in there for seven days. And I did say to my now stroke consultant that would it be possible that this had broken off and and because it's very it's very uncommon for it to go up both sides for it to be bilateral. A cerebellar stroke in itself is only one or two percent of of all strokes. But a bilateral cerebellar stroke is is incredibly rare. And he said it's possible. He says possible, but he couldn't confirm, of course. So they treated me on symptoms only. I did some research. There was a case back in the 1970s of a young boy who had a thrombosis in the same arm as myself. And it, that cervical vertebrae pinched down and caused the thrombosis. And that's and he had a bilateral cerebellar stroke as well. But the reason I wanted to to get close to a cause was was just simply for peace of mind. So that was, you know, why I delved so far into the research at the time. Having suffered his stroke during the COVID-19 pandemic, Rupert's rehabilitation is ongoing. Recovery has been a, a mishmash of fear, anxiety, milestones, joy. It's been ebbs and flows. When I first got out of hospital, like a lot of young stroke survivors, I went for that boom-bust cycle. So the brain's working incredibly hard with repair and neuroplasticity is you know, at its forefront at this period. So I was dealing with symptoms 24-7, but at the same time, I was making a lot of what I felt was progress. I continued writing. I also um, teach English lessons online, so I continued doing that. You know, I, I was going out doing activities when I felt good that I probably shouldn't have done. So in, in that early period, everything was in such a haze that I didn't know whether I was coming or going. After the six-month period and, and the neuroplasticity slowed down, 
the progress started slowing down, but the milestones were greater. So during that first six months, it was one or two percent improvements. And then I started making a 10% improvement here, a 15 improvement there. The one problem with that was as, as my mind was becoming clearer and the fog had lifted, all my other symptoms became much more in focus. So in a lot of ways, they became more strenuous. I became more fearful of them when they did crop up because they were more noticeable, all these kind of things, so much to the point that my consultant booked me in for another MRI, just my own peace of mind, which I'm very grateful for. He's been very supportive. And I haven't had any other damage since. Um, but boy, when you're going through that stage of recovery, you feel like you know there's, there's damage being done. I had a lot of hidden symptoms. The only physical symptom I had that people could see was hypermetria. So I was shuffling as I walked. And I tried really hard to rehabilitate that through counting my steps. And then I went through this novel exercise of crawling and walking my knee exercises. And then my gait has returned back to normal. But it will sometimes go back to hypermetria if I'm anxious or I'm suffering from neurofatigue. It goes back slightly to that. Recovery has been a really hard slog every step of the way, emotionally and physically as well. Coming up, Rupert on how fatigue affects him. What I suffer from, I think, is when I'm feeling all these sensations in my body that are uncomfortable and are painful and are disturbing and, uh, you know, create anxiety. And that's how I see fatigue. It's slightly different in that respect. And his advice for stroke survivors. Not all of us can be strong people, but we can all be brave people. Even the most timid mouse can be brave. So even if you don't feel, if you feel other people are being strong and you can't be strong, don't feel you have to compete with that. Just be brave to the, to the degree that you can. Let's hear how the stroke continues to affect Rupert's day-to-day -day life. I have quite severe oculomotor dysfunction. So the way my, my cerebellum is communicating with my eye muscles, and part of that is things like nystagmus. I think I also have stereopsis where I can't judge distances properly. So I, I'm quite disorientated within my space continuously. So this is nonstop. For some reason, I think this is correlating with my vestibular system. So my balance is fine. I can balance on one leg, no problem, for 10 seconds, 20 seconds. But even if I just close my eyes, it's a little bit like being on a boat. And so I've got this sort of very slight wobble inside of me that's with me all the time. Things like my right side was affected. So I do suffer some language issues, which being a writer is quite annoying. I also have regular things like tinnitus, which people just put up with. But I find quite infuriating and can get me down at times. I have no short-term recall, and that's gone. I have a lack of impulse control as well to some degree. This is the kind of thing that people won't see immediately when they look at you or when you're walking around. So I can walk from the kitchen sink to the fridge, and someone can see me do that. And without the hypermetria, so if I'm not shuffling, I look like I'm just doing a straight walk, but I'm not. It's as if I can't see, and I need to get from the fridge to the sink, but I can see. That in itself is, is quite a taxing struggle. And the problem with the hidden symptoms is that they all contribute to the neurofatigue. So that's what people wonder, you know, why are you so exhausted just from 
you know, making a cup of coffee or going downstairs or something simple like that. They're constantly with me and I'm working my way to rehabilitate them as much as I can. I, I know a lot of stroke survivors, fatigue becomes a, a sort of a major issue for them. Fatigue for, for me is, is the least of my worries. I've always been kind of a, a world-weary person. And in the past, before the stroke, it wasn't unusual for me to feel sort of mentally fatigued, not to the extent that I get now. The way that I see my fatigue seems to me mechanical. So it's, a, it's a, an utter exhaustion of the brain attempting to do what it needs to do to function. That's when my symptoms become acute. And that's what I feel. So I feel my symptoms become acute, not necessarily fatigued. I have no problem taking time out, you know, lying in bed and sighing to myself. <laughs> that's part of my personality has been a little bit like that. What I suffer from, I think, is when I'm feeling all these sensations in my body that are uncomfortable and are painful and are disturbing and, uh, you know, create anxiety and that's how I see fatigue is slightly different in that respect. Rupert has also been proactive in speaking with other stroke survivors. The greatest support I've had is from other stroke survivors. That's got to be said. It's the most welcoming and warming community of people who are all going through similar things, if not the same things expressed in a different way. That's been my rock and my foundation is my fellow stroke survivors, particularly a friend, Dave Jones, who had a, um, a brainstem stroke. He's been very supportive and close to me, giving me great advice. That's come via the Stroke Association. I've had to chase up organizations, find them. I've had to sift through, you know, countless web pages and I've, I've had to contact other people and, you know, and I, I listen to podcasts and I involve myself. I'm, I'm very participative in stroke recovery. So I am actively involved and my consultant has been absolutely brilliant. He champions young stroke survivors. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, the funding is, is just not there for us at the moment. Someone contacted me from an organization called Community Steps, which runs a weekly Zoom session. It's absolutely fantastic. And so we had that twice a week. And then, you know, you develop friendships. This organization was running things within Wales. So quite a few people were close to me. So I was able to meet them in person. You know, we go down to the pub on a Thursday. It's been word of mouth and people contacting each other. The thing with stroke survivors, to get us organized, it's a bit like herding cats. You know, we've got all these different kind of issues, particularly memory issues. And, you know, we have our, you know, we have bad patches and all these kind of things. So it takes other people who are volunteers to step in, to be the glue, to call out, to contact us, to organize things. There have been a few people that have done this and I've been lucky enough for them to have contacted me. And here's Rupert's advice for stroke survivors and their loved ones. Look for the benefits that have come out of your stroke. For me, I had strange things like my short-term memory went, but my long-term retention has improved tenfold. And I think a part of my brain is compensating and doing a better job. I can do amazing things now, like I can top vegetables faster than I and, and, and more thinly than I could. 
prior. This is all a, a, an effect of brain plasticity, but I've had to observe and, t- and really take notice of, you know, what improvements have suddenly come out of this calamity. Look for those positives, I would say. The other thing I, I would advise stroke survivors is the new me, old me axiom doesn't really sort of sit well with me. And I, I do understand that we grieve who we thought we were. But the way I kind of look at things is that we're still the same people. And we're kind of, it's a rebirth in a way. We're in a, now in a position in our life to do things, approach things a little bit differently. We're still the same person, but we can build better brains. We can concentrate on things that we may not have concentrated before in the past and improve, uh, you know, gray matter. Because we've had a, a moment in life that we've had to stop and say, my gosh, I'm mortal, uh, which most people don't think of until something like this happens. So that using that opportunity to redirect where you want to go, what you want to do, what your interests are, I think the worst thing to do is to stagnate. And I think stagnation is, and, and too long a grievance is, I think, can be counterproductive. My last piece of advice for a stroke survivor is you don't necessarily need to be strong, but be brave. Not all of us can be strong people, but we can all be brave people. Even the most timid mouse can be brave. So even if you don't feel, if you feel other people are being strong and you can't be strong, don't feel you have to compete with that. Just be brave to the, to the degree that you can. And for loved ones, I would say empathy and patience is the key. And also, not to modicoddle a stroke survivor too much because stroke survivors need independence as, you know, as much as what is feasible to someone's condition. Because some people have quite severe ataxia and asphasia and, and, and do need a lot of support, particularly, you know, older stroke survivors. But to, to allow a stroke survivor to achieve their small milestones in their own time, no matter how small, is of great value to a stroke survivor's self-esteem. The other advice I would give to a, a carer or supporter is take some time out for yourself. Have your stroke survivor's baby sat by a friend or a relative and go and spend a weekend away with a friend or something. Just have a break because all a stroke survivor can think about during recovery is the fact they've had a stroke. So for them, it's 24-7. And I don't think anyone should necessarily have to be you know sucked into that as well to that degree so you know take your time to have a break and 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 and, you know and do something for yourself so that that would be the advice i would give rupert's stroke has left him with invisible disabilities that test him on a daily basis but he's been making significant progress in his recovery and has become a proactive member of the stroke community Thank you for supporting us at Stroke Stories. You can subscribe to our podcasts on your preferred provider and it would be great if you could rate and comment on the episodes to help us spread the word. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and there's a story you can share, please contact us via our DMs on Twitter or Instagram. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.